0: would be better served if we allowed both people to speak with fewer interruptions. I, I'm appealing to you, sir, to do that. Well, and him too. Well, frankly, you've been doing more interrupting well, that's than that's all right, have. but he does plenty. Well, less than, <laughs> sir, yeah, less than- plenty. No, he less than plenty. you have. I've done almost everything in the business. I've covered Ronald Reagan for six years. I've interviewed foreign leaders, been all over the world. Not blasé, I get still get excited, but, you know, I've had those experiences. To suddenly be the moderator of a general election debate was something I had never done before. And while I went about it the way I go about my business, which is intense preparation, there were moments when the task ahead of me and the stakes were overwhelming, and I would get huge waves of, of anxiety.
1: Chris Wallace speaking to us there in September about his first presidential debate as moderator in 2016 is the veteran Fox News anchor who moderated Tuesday night's fractious encounter between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in Cleveland, Ohio. Before Tuesday night's debate, Wallace had vowed beforehand to be as invisible as possible to allow the candidates and the issues in a consequential election year to take centre stage. Well, initially, that's exactly what happened, but not for the reasons Wallace had imagined. He was drowned out by the interruptions and the barracking unfolding on the stage in front of him before intervening in ways a modern, Of a presidential debate has rarely had to do before. Wallace told the New York Times the next day that he was disappointed with how Tuesday night's debate had played out. I'm a pro, he said. I've never been through anything like this. Many of us watching the debate at home would have empathised with that statement. Chris Wallace is one of the most respected news anchors and political interviewers in the US. His career spans 50 years and some of the most storied anchor positions in US broadcast news. He was once the moderator of Meet the Press on NBC. He is respected for bringing fairness to his questions, a trait he learned in part from his father, Mike Wallace, the late, legendary TV news correspondent. Well, last month, in the calm before the storm of that controversial first debate on Tuesday, I spoke to Chris Wallace about that newscasting heritage and about the state of US media. I'm Thomas Lewis, and this is the big interview. So, to start at the start, Chris, you've been in journalism for so many years by this stage. Do you have a memory of when the idea of being a journalist first hit you? as the person you wanted to be in the job you wanted to do.
0: Yeah. Um, in 1964, I was an intern at the two national conventions. CBS News had a, a program which was pure nepotism, but I think it was actually a good idea. They offered the sons and daughters of correspondents and producers the opportunity to work at the conventions to get a sense of what their mom or dad did for a living. So I was Walter Cronkite's gopher in the anchor booth at the Barry Goldwater Convention in San Francisco. When I say gopher, go for coffee, go for pencils. And Goldwater was there, Dwight Eisenhower was there, and Nelson Rockefeller was booed off the, the podium. And I remember thinking to myself at age 16, I can't believe people get paid To have so much fun.
1: And I wonder, when you look back at the the chapters of your career and when you look at journalism, the state of it in the United States now, do the trajectories match up of of what you experienced and the work you did in the early days of your career with what is expected of journalism now in the US, would you say?
0: Well, it hasn't changed for me, but I think it has changed for journalism writ large. I get complimented, praised a lot these days for being fair. I can't tell you before COVID, when you'd see people, how many people come up and say, I I like the fact that you are equally tough on both sides. And while I like being praised as much as the next person, I actually find it a depressing commentary on the state of journalism today. Because when I started full-time in journalism in 1969 as a reporter for the Boston Globe, being fair was the bare minimum requirement that kept you from being fired. You were praised for how you wrote, how you reported, how you broadcast, but you didn't get praised for being fair. That was just assumed, and now it isn't anymore. And the idea that you don't pick sides, that you hold both sides to account, is kind of an oddity. And as I say, I find that sad.
1: And is there any way that the tide can turn on that, would you say, Chris? Or has news kind of blurred into opinion, too?
0: I think that it has become... Our whole society is so polarised. And it's not right, left. It's not liberal, conservative. it's, It's almost tribal. You know, I think that what your views are tends to reflect not just your politics, but what part of the country you live in, what your relationship is with faith and organized religion. It has become so much broader than just, I believe in this party or that party. And unfortunately, I think that news coverage has gotten swept up in that tribal view of the world. I'm not saying I'm the only person by any means, but it is kind of lonely to be equally tough on both sides, to not pick a party, a belief, a tribe that you're part of, but to try to do what I think is good old-fashioned journalism, to be neutral.
1: And that idea of good old-fashioned journalism, as you put it there, Chris, in a moment like this, in an unprecedented time in the US and elsewhere, in terms of what people want and the kind of information people expect from journalists. Is there something to be said more broadly about the return to a a more old-fashioned way of of giving people the news, do you think, and the importance of that?
0: Well, I, I, I think there is, but I don't think that's the way journalism is headed these days. I'm not saying it's going to continue, but when you look at uh, cable news, and I would include all three cable news channels. When you look at at the major newspapers in this country, I can't speak so well or I really at all about overseas, I, I don't see it headed in the direction of fact, generally. I, th- I see it headed much more in the, in the direction of picking a side.
1: And to turn to Fox News itself, Chris, and this is the only question I'll ask you about this. But it's my sense as an outsider in some way to the US media, and I guess to a lot of people who maybe don't watch a lot of Fox News Channel's coverage, that Fox News is criticised quite heavily uh, for having created the kind of polarised extremes of the debate uh, that is taking place in political discourse at the moment. How would you respond to that?
0: I think Fox News has contributed to it, but so has CNN, and so has MSNBC, and so has the New York Times. And it's interesting, I did a session at Columbia Journalism School, I think in January, February, it seems like (laughs) a lifetime ago, but pre-COVID, and Maggie Haberman, the very able New York Times White House reporter, was there. And I was getting asked a lot of questions about primetime at Fox News. And I pointed out that she wasn't getting asked nearly as many about the very liberal editorial page of the New York Times. And my conclusion about that, and I, and I say this about a lot of media writers, you know, not people who are covering the news, but people who are covering the media. I think the reason that we hear about it more at Fox News is because most of the media writers are liberal. And they're offended by the opinion at Fox News, while they're not offended by the opinion at CNN or MSNBC or the editorial page of the New York Times. But I think it's just as legitimate a question for them as it is for us.
1: I was actually a student at uh, Columbia Journalism School many years ago by this stage. And I arrived there not knowing a huge amount, uh, I'm afraid to say, about the US media landscape or the the giants of US media, past and present. But I was there in 2012, the year that your father passed away. And the professors there devoted a lot of time to going through just how remarkable a journalist your father was. And it really struck me, watching a lot of your father's interviews in that context, that he really knew what made a good question, that he knew how to craft something that would get the most honest answer. And it strikes me that that's true for your career as well. I wonder what, for you now, makes a good question?
0: Well... It's interesting. I, you know, I haven't, it's not like I studied my father, but I think there's something in the DNA. I think the key to a good question is that it be legitimate, that it be fair, that it be grounded in fact, that people, even if it's a tough question, that the person you're interviewing feel it's a legitimate question, not a gotcha question, but that it, it be pointed, that there's as little opportunity as possible for the person to get off the subject, the point. In other words, I really I work on my questions and I try to pare them down and make them as lean as possible. Because to the degree that you have some loose threads in the question, people can pull on those threads and answer that rather than answering the question you're really asking. So i know that it's an art form but it's a skill and i have to say when i watch some interviews i'm frustrated at how i think the interviewer has let the subject off the hook and you know sometimes i do too but one of the things i try very hard to do and i think my father tried very hard to do is to make the question respectful fact based and pointed and hard for the person to escape i remember I remember a couple of questions. I remember once when my father did an interview with John Ehrlichman during the height of Watergate, and he just, you, I'm sure you can find it online, and he proceeds to go through this long list of all of the crimes that had been committed by the Nixon administration, breaking and entering, uh, obstruction of justice, on and on. And the shot was tighter and tighter on Ehrlichman's face. And then my father ended and said, This all from the Law and Order Administration of Richard Nixon. And there was this long pause, and Ehrlichman said, is there a question there? And as my father said afterwards, I thought it was the best damn question I ever asked. <laughs> you know, and I remember Tom Brokaw once saying to me, I think, you know, I think a lot about questions, so it's a very good question for you to ask me. Tom Brokaw once saying, you know, what's a good question? Just say, what do you think of so-and-so? And I remember I was interviewing Margaret Thatcher in 1982, and it was during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And Thatcher was the hardest interview I ever had because she just was so quick, and obviously all the preparation from question time, she was so good at shaping your question to give the answer she wanted to give. The only time there was even a beat of pause on her part, as I said to her, and this was at the height of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, which she very much opposed. I said, what do you think of Menachem Begin? And she flinched just for a second. But I thought, well, I had you there for I had you there for a moment.
1: You've interviewed so many figures, presidents, senior political figures from around the world during your career. Are there any moments, any particular questions that stick in your mind that you felt at the time really landed, that you really got what you were going for when you were asking it?
0: You know, I I remember other people's questions better than my own. But in the 2016 debate that I moderated between Trump and Clinton, I asked about the fact that he kept saying that the election might be rigged. And I kind of broke a little bit away from my moderator's role and said, Mr. Trump, he was then a candidate, one of the things that we pride ourselves in this country is the peaceful transition of power. Are you willing to say here and now that you will accept the results of the next election? And he said, I'll keep you in suspense. And that was the lead from that debate. And, you know, I I thought, you know, I often think the initial question is not the most important. I I almost view that as a, a throwaway to get the conversation started. The key, and I'm sure you found this as an interviewer, the key is to really listen and to follow up. And it's the follow up that gets the news.
1: And to look back to the presidential debate of 2016, Chris, you became the first Fox News host to be invited to moderate a presidential. Debate. You moderated the final debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And just reading some of your, your accounts of the preparations for that from a few years ago, what struck me is a phrase you used in which you described the presidential debates as, this is civics. This isn't just a television programme. This is something very raw and very real. What was the process of, of preparing? What does that process look like when you are asked to moderate a presidential debate.
0: I think it's quite different than being an interviewer because it's a debate and you're there as the moderator, the referee, and it's like being the the referee in a prize fight. They're the two combatants and you are there to just make sure it's a good fair fight. And so one of the things that I, <laughs> I thought then and I have thought even more since is it's not about you that the best moderator is when the debate is over that people say you know who moderated that debate i can't even remember then you've done a good job because to the degree that you inter- interfere or step in or intrude in the debate you have not done what you're supposed to do it's a very different an interview is is you and the subject but a debate is the two of them debating, and you're simply trying to facilitate the conversation.
1: And I think unless you're there, it would be pretty hard to imagine for anyone exactly what it's like to be sitting in that seat on your own in front of the two people vying to be the president of the most powerful country in the world. Did you feel exhilarated while you were sitting there? How, how nerve-wracking was it? As I say, I can't really quite begin to imagine what an experience that must be like. It,
0: it, it's good that you asked this. I've been thinking about it. So I've done almost everything in the business. I've covered Ronald Reagan for six years. I've interviewed foreign leaders, been all over the world. Not blasé. I get still get excited. But, you know, I've had those experiences to suddenly be the moderator of a general election debate. And it was... 20 days before the election. So, 20 days later, one of these two people on the stage is going to be the next president, was something I had never done before. And while I went about it the way I go about my business, which is intense preparation and sort of gameplay, well, if he says this, how do I, where do I take the debate? There were moments when the task ahead of me and the stakes were overwhelming, and I would get huge waves of of anxiety. And then you'd calm down and go about your business. But I remember the night of the debate and the heads of the debate commission were talking, this was two, three minutes before the debate was gonna start and I was standing in the wings just off stage and I looked up and I said, dear Lord, literally, I've never done this before. (laughs) I said, dear Lord, if you get me through the next 90 minutes, I will never ask you for anything. So then I walked down and in the audience, you know, on one side are Bill and uh, Chelsea Clinton. In the audience on the other side are Melania and Ivanka Trump. So it, it was kind of, for somebody who's done everything, it was intimidating to me. I sat there, you had a couple of minutes as they were preparing you know, just to sort of get your legs under in the moderator's desk. And the debate began. I read the teleprompter and, and they both came out. And we, I remember the first couple of questions, maybe the first five minutes, that I heard this voice asking questions and I kept thinking, who is that? It was me, of course, but it was an out-of-body experience. But about five minutes in to this 90-minute debate, I thought, I can handle this. I've I've, I've done this all my life. And then I had a challenging, intense, but very good time for the rest of the debate.
1: And in terms of the idea of keeping things not tied to a script, I'm thinking of your interview that you did with the president in July this year. And I wonder how you prepare for an interview like that with this president particularly?
0: You know, it, it, I don't know. I can't say that it's so different than it is than preparing for an interview with any president. I will say, in one sense, it's easier with Donald Trump. And that's because he uses the same lines and the same facts over and over, whether they're true or not. So in a sense, it's easier to prepare because you kind of know what he's going to say. And that's a huge advantage to an interviewer if you know when I ask this question, here's what he's going to say. And particularly if you think it's not true that you can be well versed and have the facts right in front of you to challenge him. That wasn't what you go in to do. But it's not like, you know, some people, they'll suddenly say the sky is green and you, they've never said it before. You haven't been prepared to to challenge why the sky is green. And so it comes out of the, forgive me, the blue. (laughs) But with the president, you, you kind of know what arguments he's going to make, which makes it a little bit easier to prepare for that.
1: But how do you keep what you know you want to ask on track when, for example, the series of answers you've been getting are maybe slightly off the script that you'd imagine in your mind that they would be? How do you keep sight of what you want to get overall from the interview as it's unfolding?
0: It's a good question. The answer is you, you don't. Um, you you pick your fights. And there are certain things you think, I'm going to make an issue of this. And there are some that you just let go, which isn't to say that you are agreeing or uh, you you just you can't <laughs> you can't argue about everything.
1: And in that interview, you told the president that you were surprised that he'd agreed to sit down with you he had in the weeks before you sat down with him at the White House, been pretty mean to you online on his Twitter account. Uh, where did that surprise come from for you when he agreed to sit down with you?
0: You know, it's a funny thing about Donald Trump. I um, People often ask me because I've known him, not well, but I've known him since well before he became president. So I've had a lot of experience with him. The thing I would say about President Trump is I've never seen a bigger difference between the private man and the public figure, than with Donald Trump, he's a very nice man. He's polite. I'm talking about in private. He's pr- he's polite. He's considerate. He's interested in you. He asks questions <laughs> about you, which is very rare for a public figure. And then there's the the Donald Trump. I'm not saying that it's all an act, but you know, there's the public Donald Trump, and you know, so. On the one hand, he certainly has gone out of his way over the last year, particularly to write mean tweets about me. And the first time it happened, you know, it gets your attention. Even even if you know that it's something of a game on his part, he's the president of the United States and he's calling you out and with me sometimes in quite personal terms. But again, you know he he calls me out, you know he says you 're not your father he he's said it over and over, so the first time maybe it stings a little, and after that, it kind of becomes noise
1: it 's interesting to hear you characterize the president in that way. I think i 'm probably not alone in maybe being a little bit surprised in in hearing the President characterized in those terms. When you look at the presidential election this year, we're told that it is the most consequential election ever to have taken place in the United States. It is undoubtedly taking place in a moment that is without precedent. Does this feel like this is a consequential election for you in the context of all of the other election races that you've covered throughout your career so far?
0: Well, yes and no is the answer. No, in the sense that I think every election that I have covered since I started doing this in 1980 with Reagan and Carter, people have said, this is the most important election of our lifetimes. It's really become a cliche. And I vividly remember people saying this about Trump and Clinton four years ago. There was something in your question, though, which I will agree with when you said not that it's we've not had one that has happened in these circumstances. Well, you know, we've had them in pretty dire circumstances in the midst of wars, in the midst of economic collapses. But 2020, in my long experience, is a a pretty special and challenging year. We've had this terrible pandemic. We've had a, a painful economic collapse. We've got serious racial tensions. We've had each of those, not so much the pandemic, but certainly economic issues and racial tensions in the past. I'm not sure we've ever had all three at the same time. So this does feel more consequential than other elections.
1: And to return to the debate you moderated between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump back in 2016, I think you described it at the time as being very adversarial. Neither candidate shook hands before the debate began. That's a bit of a convention for these these things, pre-COVID at least. Do you think that we're going to see a similarly adversarial mood playing out this time around as well?
0: Yes, in terms of these two candidates. Absolutely. Yes. You know, I I started covering presidential politics in nineteen eighty with the Reagan-Carter election, and that and subsequent elections have generally been about what direction the country should go in, right or left, liberal or conservative. This election, both for the candidates in terms of how they framed it and how voters seem to be responding to it, seems more a choice between good and bad. The way Donald Trump portrays it the country is going to go to hell under Joe Biden. And it'll, it'll cease to be the country as we know it. I think in his acceptance speech, he talked basically about the American dream being at stake. Joe Biden has done very much the same. He has said decency is on the ballot, character is on the ballot, democracy is on the ballot. So when you've said that, it's, it's a lot more than a difference over tax policy. It's really a difference about who is going to be good for the country and who's going to be bad for the country. So, I expect the debates and the entire campaign to be very combative. And as far as handshaking, I'm not sure that would happen under any circumstances given the public health rules. Mm. I, I, in fact, I wonder whether Donald Trump will go up to Joe Biden to try to shake his hand in the beginning just to throw him off, because obviously the president has not been nearly as, as observant of public health rules as uh, Vice President Biden has been. And that's part of the joy of being on the stage is, you know, you, there's all the things you plan for. And then there are all the things that just surprise you that each candidate has, has gamed out with their staff.
1: And I suppose that comes back to the idea of listening that you mentioned earlier, that you have to be, whether you're a moderator or an interview, totally present in the company of the person that you're speaking to, totally aware of things that are happening, even if they're they're flashing by at sort of breakneck speed and knowing when to respond and how to respond in a split moment.
0: Yes, and, and that is actually one of the things that's most challenging, but I will say, was I found most invigorating about moderating a debate is that you're, and this is true of any live interview, but on a debate, in a presidential debate, it's on steroids, you know, you're, you want to keep the conversation going, you're thinking about what's the, the next subject, but you're also staying absolutely in the moment and trying to decide, do I pick up on that? Do I let it go? No matter how well you have prepared, the real onus is on you to make the right split time decisions.
1: Well, Chris, thank you so much for making time for us on the big interview today. It's been an absolute pleasure to meet you and really great to talk to you.
0: Well, thank you. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. And I must say, take this for what you will. You're a very good interviewer.
1: I will treasure that forever, Chris. That's incredibly kind of you. Thank you so much. My thanks to Chris Wallace. Chris's new book, Countdown 1945: The Extraordinary Story of the Atomic Bomb and the 116 Days That Changed the World, is published by Simon and Schuster and is available now. You can read our profile of Chris Wallace in the forthcoming November issue of Monocle Magazine. The big interview was produced and edited by Yolene Goffin. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening.